it's funny eventually, not now, but it better be funny or else we're all screwed. Like we better be able to laugh at ourselves at some point so that we're not just in the fetal position, like in balls of shame for how we screwed our lives up or what we've done or what we haven't done or who we've hurt and, and that kind of thing. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's. No matter what you do or where you are in your life right now, I'm pretty sure you've heard the word no more than once. And some of those no's might make you feel like you don't want to get out of bed. This podcast is here to tell you, you're not alone. If all these people can walk through the valley of no's to get to their yes, why can't you? Welcome, welcome. I hope you're doing well. I'm very glad to have you here. Thanks for stopping in to 10,000 No's. Uh, I've got a very, what I think to be important and timely topic today, uh, given all the substance abuse and addiction that is uh, really rampant in our society today. I've got Tim Crayley with me. He graduated Boston University with a bachelor's in film in 1998. Uh, Ten years after that, in 2008, he received a master's from the Hazelden Graduate School of Addiction Studies. Um, He is a CADC certified alcohol and drug counselor and a licensed professional counselor in Portland, Oregon, um, which means that he can ethically and legally treat mental health and life issues other than addiction. But he has worked at the Hazelden Betty Ford inpatient facility in Newburgh, Oregon, as a counselor and has spent nine years treating addiction, mental illness, and family issues with a specialty in treating addicted health professionals, pilots, lawyers, and those who identify as part of the LGBT community. Uh, He also has a private practice on the side, which is not affiliated with Hazelden Betty Ford in any way. He lectures extensively on shame personal accountability, and how to build an empathic and loving therapeutic community in your life to improve self-esteem. We talk all about that today. Uh, He gives trainings all over Oregon to other counselors, um, first responders, health professionals, and others who work in the human services. And just a, a little disclosure, everything he says on this podcast is his own personal opinion. They are not uh, they are his his views alone, and he's not attempting to represent the ideas of Hazelden Betty Ford or any other organization, including AA, NA, or any other that he may bring up during our conversation. Um, I, I think what I appreciated so much about our conversation is Tim's just blatant honesty and openness. And uh, I, I think you'll like him. He's a, he's a charming guy who has a, a self-deprecating humor and um, an intelligence about him, uh, very articulate, uh, very expressive, and, and kind, of, kind of bare bones. Like he, he's not talking down to me. He's actually trying to help me understand what it is he went through and uh, the abuses that he had in his childhood and how that led him to the point where he needed help. And um, we get into 
um, really the importance of community and friends and coming together and empathy. Uh, I, I think you'll, you'll hear me saying it all over the conversation that it, it reminds me so much of the communities I have found as an actor or, you know, if you or whether maybe you're a, a churchgoer and it's it's what you find there, what you find in any of the groups that you participate in. Um, Tim talks about the importance of the group and of belonging to a tribe and how that can help combat some of the issues that that drive people toward addiction um, as a way to uh, comfort themselves. Um, from their anxieties. So I really hope you're going to enjoy this. I thank you for being here. Again, if you want to spread the word, if you're really liking these podcasts, I love that. iTunes reviews always help. Um, put it on social media. Just just tell one person, honestly, if you get something out of this. This one in particular, I think it could really help someone who is teetering on the edge of going down a, a pretty bad path. Um, have them give it a listen and and hear it from someone like Tim who has been there and done that and still uh, battles his own demons as well as helping others battle theirs. Without further ado, I give you Tim Crayley. We call it the detox. The detox. By the way, I'm glad we're, we're getting a few laughs in here. As we said before we started, it, you know, it could yeah. probably delve pretty pretty deep here with what yeah. you do. So yeah. a little levity is uh, probably a good thing. Well, it's like I tell the guys I work with, I say this stuff, you know, eventually it, it's funny. Eventually, not now, but it better be funny or else we're all screwed. Like we better be able to laugh at ourselves at some point so that we're not just in the fetal position, like in balls of shame for how we've screwed our lives up or what we've done or what we haven't done or who we've hurt and, and that kind of thing. So you mentioned shame. I know from talking to you prior to this, that shame is a really almost sounds to me like the central maybe topic for you in, in, in this work. Is that Accurate, somewhat. I think so. I mean, I think I'm sort of known as the the shame, <laughs> the shame guy at <laughs> at work. Um, we taught Brene Brown's stuff, and we we love her. Yeah, we we uh, mention her stuff a lot, and she's got some experience in recovery of some sort. I don't know what kind uh, specifically, but she uh, we were teaching her curriculum sort of straight. Um, really? Yeah. Is I, she aware of that? Yeah. You can buy um, a, a whole training program she has. Um, and we were, you know, I w every Monday I was teaching her curriculum to the, the entire facility. Um, but, you know, I think my own journey with, with shame, I, you know, it was my own recovery being sitting in recovery meetings and sort of realizing that. Um, the fabric or, or the, the thing that bonded us was not what we used or how we used or what drug we were into or he liked alcohol, she liked crack cocaine, he's addicted to shopping, she's addicted to gambling. Um, I started to kind of um, sitting in recovery meetings and not wanting to be there, of course. I mean, sort of um, wishing I could be anywhere but there, but 
um, I started to hear sort of a share underneath the share, you know, like there was what people were saying up top, but underneath I kept hearing this refrain that was, I'm not enough. Something's wrong with me. You know, I feel like uh, uncomfortable in my skin. You know, I'm, I feel like an alien in my own family. Uh, the kids at school, even though I was popular, I never felt included. It was my internal world was unstable. It wasn't okay. My relationship with myself was not good. Um, I didn't like myself. I, and then the the contradiction of the juxtaposition, you know, and addicts, the, the egomaniac with the inferiority complex, you know, that a lot of addicts have this, you know, we, we can have this incredible ego, you know, where we're, no one can tell us anything. We're totally defensive. We're right about everything. Um, and then I started to kind of put together, I started hearing that, that refrain, that message underneath that, you know, that I spend all my time trying to, get, to convince you of that. And on some level, I'm convinced that I'm Superman or Superwoman. But on a deep level, that quiet voice inside me tells me I'm nothing and tells me that when you find that out, you're going to reject me. So um, what we get is addicts rejecting others before they can reject you know, me. Um, and rejecting ourselves. And it becomes this sort of, un it becomes an unconscious process. We're not even conscious we're doing it. Like we, you know, you, if you looked at my life in active addiction on paper and you just, and I just gave it to you, everything I did in active addiction, and I just handed it to you and said, here, look at the data, Maddie. What would you what would you say about this guy? I mean, you might say, if they said, what, what, what does this guy want most out of life? You, you might say, well, he wants to die. I mean, look at everything he's doing. I mean, he keeps repeating these dangerous patterns over and over and over again. So is there some sort of unconscious self-destruct mechanism in this guy? What's wrong with him? And um, the illness of addiction, we don't don't quite know what it is, but it's interesting because we know how to treat it. You know, we know that um, when people who suffer from this illness, which it is, um, when they gather in an atmosphere of love, empathy, uh, mutual respect, common suffering, it turns on the brain in this way that is miraculous. I mean, therapeutic, medicinal, and life-changing. And yeah. some people think that, you know, they, 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 people take a lot of issue with AA, NA, all these A's because they're, oh, there's a God-based, not kind of backdooring Christianity on you and, and you know, a higher power. Well, I didn't like it because it was a higher power. And, I, and the, the truth of the matter is, is that, it's not about your beliefs. It's about being in the room with other humans in this spirit of, um, of empathy, which Brene Brown talks about a lot. Yeah. And the currency that we trade in recovery meetings is suffering and empathy. And there's no advice given in those meetings. And that's astonishing. 
I mean, you're not, you're not permitted to give advice. You're not permitted to respond. You're not permitted to call anyone out individually. You, they, we, the, the meeting takes your name from you at the door. It makes you anonymous. Man. I don't know if I realize that. So everybody participates. If you want to. If they want to. And by, just by but being nobody there. nobody can comment on whatever anybody else no. shared. And that's over the years, I've realized that that's the core. That's the medicine. Is that It's called crosstalk. There is no crosstalk. And Bill W. and the, the founders of the program, you know, they knew, they were just sort of, they knew that if you let a bunch of addicts in a room start giving advice to each other, it'd be a wrap pretty soon. You know, well, like, you know, I mean, it would just. I'm, I, where my mind is going, and uh, I don't, it's not to make light of it, but it's, it's really, first of all, I see so many parallels to so many of the conversations I've had on this show. Mm. And then I see so many similarities to acting classes. Uh, And it's making me think of a story that a buddy of mine told me about a class he attended at the actor's studio and Pacino was the moderator. Mm. And somebody was up doing a scene and they, they got done, and generally the teacher will, you know, the moderator or the teacher will comment on it. Mm. And sometimes the peanut gallery will True. chime in, and people started to chime in and, like, rip apart whoever was up there. And he turned and he's like, it's a lot easier from out there. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. It's yeah. like it's the same It's the same deal. It's like when that person is yeah. up there sharing, whether it's sharing their life story or working as, right. as an actor, exposing themselves in some way, it is a lot easier to have – this perspective and you could be trying to be helpful, but, but maybe you have to let them work through it. Well, no, I think that's right. And I, it is easier out there and you don't, you can't, you know, an improv, you don't negate the premise, you know, and that's sort of how it goes. Like never negate, don't say no up there and you'll learn pretty quick. Um, because you dismantle what the collect the consciousness up there the collect and in recovery we call it the group conscience the conscience of the group is something bigger than the individual that we're creating building this um, uh, a spirit in the room now not something you know I guess words are kind of shabby when you're describing this stuff but. You know, that there's, you know, a meeting might go, oh, oh, I, you know, I heard the, the woman in the back. I liked what you said. And it, it, and it made me think about something in my life. Now, it's not exactly the same, but let me share. Yeah. Boom, boom, boom. And, and then now the next you're per- lessening that person's well, shares. No, no. I mean, you can build on it. On yeah, it. you're okay. permitted to do that. But it's frowned upon to say like, oh, I don't agree with that uh, when you sort of negate the thing. Now, if you want to build on someone's share, you're, you're permitted. That's, that's that's kind of culturally okay. Um, But it's really, I mean, after years and years, and I mean, I've been to maybe, I don't know, in 14 years clean, I mean, I've been to maybe four, maybe 1500 recovery meetings. I don't think I've won. 1500. Maybe, maybe. And you don't think you you wanted to be? I don't think I've wanted, wanted to go to one of them. Not ever once. Really? No, I've never once been like, oh, goody. Like I'm get to go to a meeting. No. I'm surprised by that. Yeah, I think... Uh, Especially I, given what you do yeah. now, that you are... It's like going to the gym is the best parallel. It's like I've never... 
you know, I don't want to walk in there. I don't want to smell those rubber mats. I don't want to hear those weights clanking. I don't want to see the guy who's in better shape next to me. You know, I don't want to, you know, uh, you know, I just don't want to go. I'd rather stay at home and be in, uh, watch Netflix. And But once you go, do you feel every time it's, it. the, it's the yeah. same uh, idea. And what I've realized over the years is that actually the change occurs in me at almost 30 minutes to the minute in the meetings. I can feel my brain change chemically. I can feel my adrenaline go down. I stop criticizing others and myself. I am more focused in on what people are saying. I'm not thinking about why that guy said that thing to me that way and what I should have said back and what I should have done with my life and why don't I have more money and all the stuff that just the butterfly mind. You know, at 30 minutes, I I, I think what happens is that, you know, the the blood is sort of coming to the front of the head, you know, to the, you know, I don't know a lot about um, this stuff, but I know that, you know, meditation pushes blood around the brain. It, it starts to pool in the front. It takes blood away from the fear center, from the, the limbics of the lizard brain. And, and I, that's, I know that my prefrontal lobes or my prefrontal cortex is lighting up because my, I feel less, um, uh, antsy. I feel less afraid. I feel less compulsive, impulsive, I'm craving less. The thing that I wanted when I came in the meeting, you know, the 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 cute girl that I wanted to notice me or the car that I wanted when I walked in or the, you know, the person to treat me a little better, all that kind of fear-based thinking just diminishes and just yeah. goes down. And, and I, I think if you hooked up someone, hooked us up to fMRI machines in... AA or NA or and or any group smart recovery or refuge recovery or an acting a, a class an acting class where like positive feedback was given or any of that um, that you would see these chemical shifts these chemical changes occur and I remember you know I used to go to meetings and sit there and try to gather ammunition so I could uh, so I could bring it down so I could you know teach yeah. everyone that do you feel a shift in you now that you counsel or do you still feel like I'm the same guy I'm the same recovering addict that I was when I started and I'm in the same boat as all these people it doesn't matter I mean are you in actual groups with people that you also counsel outside of these groups do I see no. them at AA meetings or NA meetings? yeah I do, like, are you I do counseling someone yeah. during the day and then you go to a meeting at night and you see someone I do if if they're currently in the treatment center I'll leave Oh, you Which is always makes for an interesting because it's a conflict of interests, or it is, and that, and I, I agree with that because they, you know, I, they're, I'm their therapist at that time. Yeah. So, um, you know, they meet if they're going off campus to a meeting if they're at that lower level of care where they can do that, and they see me, they come in, and oftentimes this happens a lot, actually, a lot. Um, you know, they may need to, they may feel I'm checking up on them, spying on them. They need that same anonymity that got me well. Yeah. You know, that having no name, I'm the same as. So out of respect, you kind I of leave. bow out. And what's interesting about that is it often has, uh, I try to remember to tell them that I'll do that because they are so raw and afraid that when, if I get up and leave, 
the next day they'll say, I saw, I'm sorry. You know, I, I saw you at the meeting. I'm so sorry, Tim. I know you, well, you need to recover too. And it's yeah. my fault because they're in that kind of raw, fearful state. So I have to do a lot of, look, man, no, like you need to do that. I'm, I'm expected to do that. I'm happy to, I, and I know where all the meetings are in the area. So I just go to another one. Right. And so I really try to minimize that shame because they are so deeply ashamed. So let me ask you, what, how early in your life were you using and what was your first, was it alcohol? Was that the, the yeah. entrance? Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, alcohol, you know, it's a, where, where's the keg and went to the keg party. and Like uh, junior high Yeah, uh, I think I was... 15 the first time I got so like, that's drunk not really that that's food. actually really not very early no that's like what I yeah. was I was like sophomore year and I thought I was really late compared to a lot of people a lot and yeah and there I meet I people, like people were time, drinking yeah. in seventh grade oh you know? yeah, like oh, a, yeah lot of a lot of people yeah so that's interesting you didn't what was your stance on it before that were you playing sports and yeah I did I played sports and I um that whole world kind of scared me. And I grew up with, you know, raging. Uh, my uh, my mother's second husband was a raging alcoholic, you know, violent and... Violent toward you? Yeah. And my sister, um, it was uh, it, it was not safe. I mean, we, we grew up in an unsafe environment. Now, there was a lot of... And my, was, did your mom have a problem as well? Or no. was she just enabling him? Yeah, she, she was just... And allowing, kind of, she knew what was going on. Yeah, my biological father is an alcoholic, but a very a sweet, compassionate, loving man. And um, he was raised by an angry, depressed alcoholic. And he, he really tried to do better than that. Um, and he did. And I get what my – I think I get my depth of compassion from him. Uh, but mom, when she married him, he was sort of this – you know, he's very charismatic musician type, and and she fell in love with You're him. You're biological, yeah. Okay. And they were divorced before I was born, oh. and then she married another alcoholic, and he was sort of the polar opposite, angry, you know, self-centered, uh, you know, vitriolic, you know, anger and rage, mean to us, and. My were you sister, scared just yes, in we, your own home? Yeah, my sister and I and my mother, uh, we were all terrified. I mean, going home was was not a happy time. From what age was it? So, like, was he the only dad you knew in the house, basically? Because, in the house, yeah. So like, when you were an infant, he was there? Uh, no, I was. I think I was about three when he came on the scene. Oh. And it's funny, I remember, I remember one of my only memories of back then. I don't have very many, but I remember... Um, knowing that he disliked me at age three, I just really, because you I, were another human that I was crawled up on his from him, or I crawled up on his lap and I said, "We're going to call you, uh, we're going to call you Papa because we already have a daddy, right?" And I remember his reaction was lukewarm at best, sort of cool. He was just like, huh, kind of nothing. And I, I was keen enough at that age. I was like, he doesn't. He doesn't like me. Like, he doesn't want this. He doesn't want to connect with me, you know? And, and was he the same way with your sister? Yeah. Yeah. Did he have kids of his own? No. No, no. Man, I'm just thinking of how difficult that must have been to be in your own house and feel like you're on walking on eggshells. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was, it's amazing that yeah. you lasted till 15 before trying to medicate, actually. Well, yeah, no, I, I left that house at 11 to go live with my biological. I said, I oh, want out. Yeah. I left at 11 to go live with my biological dad. And he went, he went to treatment. Um, the and, stepdad? No, no. My biological, biological dad, dad. Okay. went to treatment around that same time. And so alcoholism and, you know, I had sort of a very, uh, you know, typical alcoholic upbringing, you know, just not a lot of safety, a lot of unpredictability, you know, uh, anger, violence, uh, you know, uh, you know, that's, it's a very common story when alcohol's sort of running the show. Yeah. It's a very common. Now, just because I happen to know two of your close friends from growing up, um, did having those other, having friends and their families and their households, was that a bit of a lifeline for you to have like an alternate safe zone to go to? And how much would you say that factored into you being okay in as much as it was, you were okay. It was everything. It saved my life. It saved your life. Yeah, my our, our mutual friend. I mean, I literally forced my way into his family. Like he, <laughs> I would show up at his house on Friday, you know, after school. And, and his parents knew what was going on? Like did no everybody kind of know no, or did nobody know? They really didn't, you know, and that's the... They were just like, hey, Tim's here. The, like nobody really got it. No, I think, I mean, there were certain, at school, they knew I was defiant, that I was, uh, you know, I was attention seeking, that I was, I was poorly behaved. I was smart, but I couldn't focus. Were your grades poor? Uh, not, not at, in the fifth and sixth grade. Uh, they started to drop precipitously in high school. Yeah. Um, and this is common. I hear this all the time too from the guys I work with. They say, you know, I was a good kid. I, I did well in school. I worked hard. I wanted to get good grades. That mattered to me. But the problem, when when I think, uh, when you're spending a lot of time thinking, am I safe? Am I safe? Am I safe? How do I make myself safe? How do I make my sister, my mother safe? How do I get away from this? How do I get us out of this? You know, and kids, we take, kids take responsibility for everything. I mean, good, bad, everything. Yeah. Everything's because of them. So I would sit in my room and think I have to somehow magically figure this out. Like, you know, I didn't think, oh, uh, I wonder if I, you know, child protective services, like I, you know, I didn't know what, who to call or what to do. Um, yeah. You know, um, but that's where the shame begins. Um, shame. shame that you are not capable of saving your family. Is that what it is? Yes. That's how it begins. I believe for me, as I thought, um, I should be a bigger, stronger, uh, more, um, capable man. Even though you were like 11. A little boy. Yeah. And I think a lot of, you know, I, I, I spent, I mean, I can't tell you how I spent most of my time waiting to get physically bigger. I literally, that's all I thought about was when am I going to be big enough so I can take this guy yeah, and protect my mom and sister. Did you ever physically fight your stepdad? No, never. But I spent years, I, I left prior to that and my mom left 
shortly thereafter and my sister as well. So I sort of. Oh, so your mom split up with yeah, the stepdad. I stood up, I stood up to him the last night I was in DC before I was going to go to Baltimore to live with my dad. I, he sat down. When you were 11 or. Yeah. I looked him in the eye and I said, you're bad and you hurt us and I'm leaving. Cause he was. And did he hit you or did he just. No, he just looked. No, he, he would spank us, but his thing was the screaming, like nose to nose screaming. Like, you know, he was, you know, might as well have been like grizzly bear, you know, in yeah. my face. I mean, he would, I would, you know, I would, I was so afraid. I mean, I can't even describe it. I was just shaking with fear all the time, you know. And, uh, you know, and it's interesting is like now I'm a therapist and, and like I know that he, he, I don't know the story, but I know he was abused. I know he came from that too. You don't hurt kids unless you're hurt. Yeah. Period. And so what's really interesting is it, it to me is that I I had so much anger. I mean it was what I I th- I thrived on it. I mean it kept me alive. Did you use it towards sports or did you use it toward like was that one I of did. Your things were, or or towards something else were you a big fighter were you Yeah, big- I mean I I did. I mean I was I I was I I was violent um more than some not as 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 much as others, you know, and I, but I, I knew that intimidation was, was necessary, you know, and it was the most powerful thing I'd ever experienced that this guy could rule us and intimidate us. I thought, and I thought pretty much men are bad, you know, men are, are, are beasts who, you know, use their powers for evil and I'm going to be a good man. I'm going to be heroic and then as I got older and I, I fell into addiction, you know, and I started doing, becoming, you know, uh, more like him. How did it shift you? So you started drinking. Yeah. I started drinking get, and I started. Would you get more violent when you were drinking? Uh, no, actually. Or I felt angrier when I was sober. sober. Okay. Yeah. And I used chemicals as a way to. Uh, uh, take care of myself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people do. I mean, and you, it's really interesting is that chemicals really are the solution. They're not the problem in the beginning. They really are the solution. And that's why it's so hard to get clean because there was this time. I mean, I remember the first time I got loaded the right way, sort of, you know, they mixed the alcohol and the opiates. And I felt so safe and good about everything. And I knew that I was going to do that every day for the rest of my life. Okay. So someone's listening right now. They're not to that point yet. Yeah. But let's say they are, they've got a similar situation to you growing up or maybe not as extreme, but they're, you know, they, you know, whether it's alcohol or pot or whatever, ecstasy, something, they take it feels great. They're like, oh, this is great. What's your, can you warn someone mm. or <laughs> did they have to just learn it in your experience? Do they just have to <laughs> learn it on themselves by falling down? And cause some people can handle it. Some right. people do it. Doesn't really, they move on. They're like, oh, that was sure. cool. And then they move on. Do you think that just telling someone Hey, don't do that. I know it feels good now, but you're going to regret it later. Is that going to work or no? Is that just empty? Oh man, I mean that's the I mean you you figure out how to do that <laughs> and I mean this is the whole this is the question. Can you preemptively stop addiction? You know, can 
can you catch it? Can someone get clean before their life hits rock bottom? Can they make a change before the pain of remaining the same becomes greater yeah. you know, than the fear of change? Can they? You know? Well, that's it. when you were speaking in the beginning and you were talking about the dynamics and what it is that brings someone the shame and they keep doing you said if i if, if i were yeah. to give you the data you would say this guy's trying to he wants to die he why is he doing this over yeah. and over again making these mistakes over and over again right. and i was thinking to me it just sounds like a more intense version of what every other person goes through yeah because everybody's doing that myself included oh, everybody absolutely. i've had on this show yeah. included everybody who writes in and says Thanks for the show. Anybody. Yeah. We're all doing stuff that we're like, I could sit here and talk to you and say, yes, I should do this, 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 and this. Right. And that would get me to where I want to go. Mm. Inevitably, because I'm human, mm. I won't do this, 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 and this. I'll do some of them. I'll do most of them most of the time. Right. But then I'm not going to do it. It sounds like what you're talking about is it, it, when you're talking about like a, a preemptive um, therapy or, right. or detox or something, yeah. it almost sounds like, yes, that's called good upbringing. Like that's called like yeah. maybe good parenting or good coaching or good teaching. Yeah. Because to, from what I'm interpreting of what you're saying is like the, the beauty of the program is a collective place where people can go and share and feel safe yeah. and not feel alone. Yes. So it seems like if you could do that a little earlier in someone's yes. life, maybe they don't get to that point where they have to find yes. a substance to get them there. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think the the AANA model, you know, um, God or no God or G-O-D, group of drunks, you know, is what a lot of people just say. I remember when I first heard that cheesy line, I was like, I love that. I'm, I'm going to just stick with that. I don't think I've ever that. heard that, Yeah, actually. group of drunks, you know. But – we're biologically designed to gather. I mean, we need to gather with others in this spirit. And those of us that if you're lucky and have a big family and a lot of uh, extended friends, I mean, it does. I mean, it's, it's, you know, beyond cheesy to say, but it takes a village to raise every single human. And, you know, um, insight is insufficient against, you know, the safety and the um, the relief that chemicals bring to some people. And then you get into the question of why is one sibling and chemically addicted and not the other? I mean, my, <laughs> my sister, Your my beloved not, sister, uh, who, you know, is like... Who shares the same name. Same name, daughter. same house, grew up in. She and I would drink like, Sailor, I mean, we drank, and, and no one was left at the end of the night except us. I mean, we were sitting there, and I'm a hopeless drunk, you know, early on. And she could drink 10, 20, 30 beers. I mean, she could drink and drink and drink and drink, and she did. And one day... She just stopped. She stopped. She got a health problem. She didn't like the way she felt. It scared her. Doctor said, listen, you keep drinking and smoking like that, and X, Y, Z is going to happen. And she said, okay. How old I was she? at the doctor appointment. I could not believe. Was she in her 20s? This was uh, 11 years ago. And she was four. She, she's older than you? Yeah, three, three, years. three years. So the, about she was about 34. She, she says, and we walked out of the doctor's office. I went to give her support because she had some esophageal stuff. And 
And we walked out of there and she goes, well, I guess I'm done. And I just, and that was it. I mean, I was behind her just making faces. I was like, yeah, you're done. Right. Yeah. Okay. And she really okay, did. Sid. She really did. Hasn't had a drop since. So here's the thing. I sit down and my dad and I are dyed in the wool, just addicts to our bones. I mean, everything we do is addict. You know, we get one pocket knife, we need 10, you know, <laughs> I mean, you should see us like, you know, we go out and we buy six baseball hats each, you know, like we don't, you know, we're just, everything's addict, you know, yeah. we're the whole, the, the tub of ice cream gone, you know, that, I mean, I think that but, seems like a lot of people that I know that are in the program. Yeah. It's that way. Like they're all jacked because like they, and they say it to me, yeah. they say, well, I just <laughs> traded in, you know, yeah. heroin for the gym or the gym, something, yeah. you know, it's, yeah. I guess that's, so go on. Sorry. Well, oh. dad and I will sit and what's really interesting is I, I, I spent, I mean, relatively speaking, limited time with him growing up, but we are like this, our thought train, the way we're organized internally is almost exactly the same. We're both cynical, we're charismatic, we're above average intelligence, we're deeply sensitive, self-centered, uh, deep shame if we think we've done something wrong. We lash out, we project, you know, onto others, you know, with the stuff we don't like about ourselves and we try to then we you become a counselor if you want to work your issues. <laughs> yeah, um, there, one of my old mentors used to say, "What's the difference between the patients and the and the therapist here, Tim?" And I'd say, "I don't know." And he'd go, "The patients get better and go home, <laughs> and, and the therapist we just stay and get sicker and sicker, you know, because we're all trying to work something out." That's fun, a little, yeah. But um, can you talk to me a little bit about yeah. that transition from? Did you go to Hazelden yourself? Is that where no, you did I went the program? to a I went to a much cushier program because I thought my mommy should, you know, send me to a much. I, I deserved a feather bed and a helicopter ride and like a whole, really? my own so horse. Let, so yeah. let, let's get into it a little bit, just because I like to go down this path of like, you know, it's ten thousand no's and you talk about. I mean that yeah. that, that you have that's just one huge no right there yeah. was your stepdad. I mean that's yeah. like that kind of encompasses all other mm -hmm. no's. I mean, it's like your house is not safe. Right. But then it sounds like you you kind of made it work despite that or in spite of that. And then you found alcohol, 15. And then what happened? Like, how'd you do through high school? Did you... I mean, I, I, I barely made it, almost failed out. I squeaked through college, almost failed out. All Where'd you go? To, so you're from D.C.? D.C. I uh, went to a, a, an elite private school in D.C. I yeah. went to a, a working class public school in Baltimore when I was with dad. So that was a big shift. Um, and then back to D.C. for that. And then I went to Boston University. Yeah. And I, I, my base, I just deep sixed my baseball career, you know, because I was, you know, I, I was a decent little high school baseball player and I could have played at BU and I walked onto the team. I was the starting second baseman, but I couldn't get my work done because I was getting loaded every day. Okay. So we just yeah. kind of skipped a little thing there. I mean, that's important is that despite all of this stuff going on at home, you still end up being good enough in baseball that you go and walk on at BU, that you got into BU, which is a great school. Um, you're at an elite high school. So that stepdad, was he, like when you give me the description of the mm. stepdad, I'm picturing a guy, you know, like 
with a wrench in his hand, like that's like like a like a bulldog in your face, and then you're yeah. saying you're at this elite. What what was his position in the world? Was he kind of like he a, was a, a he leached off my mom. My oh. mom made it. My mom is a brilliant woman. She came to DC in sixty. She in politics or actually translator at the World Bank. So she speaks super smart. Yeah, five languages fluently. Brilliant. Wow. She's, okay. Yeah. So. You know, she bought her own house, single woman in D.C., 1963, you know, so she was not. And this guy just came in. Just came in and she put him through Georgetown Law. He failed the bar a couple of times like he could not get it done. And she just cared financially for all of us and tried to protect us from him as best she could. But she just. What was the straw that broke her back with with that guy? Was it how he treated you guys and that you left? When I left, yeah. And, and your sister stayed, though, when you She left? left and stayed with a friend for the rest of the school year, and Mom moved out of her own house, and he So stayed. this guy came in yeah. and basically, like, took over the house. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, just a— Is he still around? He he, still- I, think he's al- I think he's alive, and, you know, I used to just have so much anger towards him, you know? I mean, I just lived in that angry place. It was sort of like how I identified myself. And then the program, (laughs) the miracle program, just turns you inside out and- So how do you look at him now? How do you view him? Sick, as sick. And- You have compassion for him? I do, I mean, I do. I think, you know, to tell you the truth, if I saw him on the street, I don't, depending on how much coffee I had in the day, you know, (laughs) like, I, I don't know what I would do. I don't, I, I used to, I used to know that I would like, you know, confront him and all that stuff. And, but, um, you know, I've had these people in my life who have loved me and in the program, they say, well, love you until you can love yourself. And that includes our mutual friend, every single person in my life. I I mean, I have such um, quality people in my life. I mean, I cannot believe it. And I think that was I intuitively knew knew how to go find that, but it's it's very hard, you know. It's hard, and I I really feel for people who are introverted, who who don't have that extroverted sort of jokey charisma that I always had. You know, I just it didn't scare me to walk straight into a, a beauty salon and be like, "Hey, everybody!" You know, I was yeah. just one of those guys, and uh, but like my sister, even sober, you were. Oh yeah, even yeah. as a kid, I was sort of in a. You know, and, and but my sister is is, she's not as much like that. She's more thoughtful. You know, she waits for people to come to her, and you know we need others, and they're not going to come knock on our door. They're not. Yeah. You know, like they're not going to come and rescue us. You know, and say, hey, become here. We want you to be part of our family. You know, we we adopt you now. It's not going to be the Hollywood ending. Like we have to go out and get it. So that's your advice to people who. If someone's listening and they're going, you know, they're going through this or yeah. y- your advice is seek out a support group. Hit your wagon to one person. One person. One person who has a skill that you don't, who you trust, who can, who has a little motivation to go do this. Someone who, who is interested in you and wants what's best for you. Just one person. Start there. You know, um... You know, we can't all run out and, you know, we can't all make the baseball team. We can't all, you know, uh, go to the acting class. We can't all sing. Like, we're not all, 
we're not all alcoholics and just get like crawling into an AA meeting. I mean, uh, you'll hear it at meetings a lot. We feel like those of us who've been around a long time in AA and NA, we feel like we're the lucky ones to be alcoholic, to be addicts, because we would have never been exposed to this. We would have never been yeah. so desperate. To, I mean, going to an AA or an NA meeting, it's a desperate act. You had bad, bad coffee, folding chairs, church basements for the rest of my life. Are you kidding me? You know, and you're just desperate. You're like, I don't know where else to go. I mean, if someone walked into that AA meeting and was like, I got a better way. I got to like get you clean in 30 days and you never have to come to these wretched meetings again. Most people would take it. But you stick around long enough and you realize that you are being changed from the inside out. You know, that you are learning. It's, it is nothing short of a reparenting. I mean, what's a sponsor? A loving mother or father, hopefully. Yeah. Um, you know, that. come on. It's a guide, a mentor, someone who loves you, someone who accepts you unconditionally. I mean, I know guys in AA who are like, I never, my dad and I haven't spoken in 30 years. My, that's my dad. I had a, I had a, a friend of mine, uh, an enforcer for the Gypsy Jokers, one of the most gentle guys I ever met in NA. And he would point over at this mutual uh, friend of ours in recovery. And this guy was like a polo wearing, like, you know, nice looking, you know, Volvo driving dad type. And he was like, that's my dad right there. Because you know? that guy was accepting. Of he him. was like he, he he was like I told him the worst things I've ever done, and those he's like and the worst things I've ever done would get me locked under a prison today, and he just sat there with love in his eyes for me, unconditional acceptance. I mean, where else do you get that? Nowhere. And I mean, and here's this thing that, and I mean, I know it, it seems like I'm like plugging the program and what I'm really plugging is community. And I don't know the answer. I don't know how to achieve that. You know, I'm not smart enough to create a meeting, just an em empathy group yeah. on at the corner tonight for anyone who wants to come. But, you know, uh, Brene Brown, I think has said some of this, you know, that maybe you should start a podcast. Honestly, I mean, I'm joking, but that that's, what yeah. this is, I feel like this is like a meeting. It's just that not everybody's here at the same time. Oh, I know. But when people are listening, yeah. that's the gist of it is like everybody listening to other people going like, oh, they're just as fucked up as me. Do I have to buy these mic? How much are these mic? <laughs> we could talk about it after we set you up. <laughs> I'll, give you a, I'll give you a plan. I'll uh, get a kickback from the uh, yeah. mic people. Um, no, but but honestly, that that is... It's it's a very I mean I really identify I've never been to a meeting before yeah but hearing about it almost made, you but you can't if you're oh not, yeah right? you, yeah, can't, you, can. you can't anyone is welcome yeah anyone. it would be really I think yeah. it would be really educational not only for me but for anybody to oh, go oh did you check would, it out. I, I was at a meeting one time and they say there are closed meetings you know they say for closed meetings for alcoholics well, that's, only I would feel weird like do people go oh well what's this dude no, doing here he's no you know. because in our traditions in the traditions of the meeting it says the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop using. It doesn't say you have to be an addict. It doesn't yeah. say you have to know you're an alcoholic, anything. And I can't tell you how many meetings I've been to and there's been some like college kid there who says, you know, I, I have to go to 10 meetings for this class on addiction I'm taking. And everyone goes, welcome. Yeah. We're glad you're here. Yeah. You want to share? Well, I, I've got a book right over there. You yeah. see it? Gratitude, Gratitude I and saw Trust. It. I saw it. It's uh, John Williams who- Is he a recovery guy? 
Yeah, and, and he, uh, so I'm sorry, Paul Williams. He's he's a musician and he's an actor. He was on Goliath this, this year, this season. Yeah, and I heard him on Oprah talking about it. And then, yeah, that grab- his, he. So he is a recovering addict. And, yeah, and and the is it uh, Tracy Jackson? She is not. But she believes in the program, so they talk about gratitude and trust, and they talk about the program. And well, that it, it's, that's yeah. what I'm saying. That is, they're basically the premise of yes. that book was, hey, why do you have to be an addict to be exposed to this yeah. program, which has helped so many people? Everybody should be on a recovery program. Oh, that's yeah. kind of my thought. Is like, it's just not quite as, you know, DefCon four for everybody sure. else, maybe as it is for an addict, but it's. Well, yeah. yeah. And I mean, you know, it's basically we're, we're suffering from, I'm not enough. You know, when, when you find that out, you're going to reject me. So I do all these things to keep, keep you from actually seeing that my soft underbelly or the scared little boy inside me. Um, And I spend all of my time protecting myself. And when I do that, I, I'm at odds with the world. You know, I lash out. I hurt my children. I get in an argument with a lady on the street. I I feel terrible and depressed and angry all the time, you know, and that what it, to be quite honest, I think at its core, what the program does is over time, it, it, it improves your self esteem. And I used to sit in meetings and be very confused. I would, I would, hear people say, oh, I'm so, I'm a grateful recovering addict today. And I just scowl and growl. I feel this deep. And would you think like, oh, you're so full of shit? No. Well, I, 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 yeah, I did feel that. I felt they were, but I also, it validated everything I knew about others, that I wasn't like them, that, that they were happier than I was, or they had a better, they were dealt a better hand than I, or whatever. And I, it, it did. It had the opposite effect on me. I, I felt further from them because at that time, all I had was my anger. How'd you flip a switch? Or did you? I was at a meeting, an NA meeting in DC. I didn't, I had about a year and a half clean, which was like, you know, might as well. I thought I was like an old timer. I thought I had, um, which it was, I mean, a year for a, a, someone who couldn't go 10 minutes, you know, forever. Um, and this woman was sharing. She was very well put together. And I, I knew her a little bit from the meetings. And she said, I'm going to tell you a story about uh, something I did in active addiction. And all the addicts, we all kind of lean, lean in like, oh, here come the gory details finally. Like, at least we'll get a little something tonight, you know. And so, you know, the guy with the neck tattoo, he leans in. And me in my little collar shirt, I lean in. And, you know, and the girl, you know, sitting there drinking the rock star, she leans in. And, you know, and then the... And we all kind of lean in. And she goes, one night not too long ago, I put my kids to bed. And I have two beautiful kids. And I live in a nice house down the street. And I uh, tucked them in. And we're, well, here it comes. You know, the wretched, you know, the gory details, whatever. And she goes, and then I went downstairs. And I uh, went into the bathroom. And I took out my little marijuana pipe. Little Back then when they didn't have the vape pen, they had the bats, right? Yeah. And she goes, uh, and I took the mirror and I would smoke weed out of this bat and blow it into the vent. And it was about that quiet. We were like, that's it. That's your freaking story. Like, that's, I mean, I, I hate these meetings, you know. 
And she continued and she said, you see, I know that that makes me a bad mother. You see, I made an agreement with my kids when they were little, a tacit agreement. I held them in my arms and I said, I will protect you with everything I have. And I will remain vigilant, especially when you are vulnerable and asleep. And I didn't do that. And that makes me bad. And she started sobbing. And right then I was like, I get it. I get it. I get it. This isn't about what you've done, how much you've done, who you are, how cool, you know, he shot dope a million miles an hour. She only drank wine cooler. Like it doesn't, none of that matters. This is about, this is a subjective experience. It's on the inside. I'm a piece of crap when I say I am. Right. And that woman felt deeply ashamed. She felt like on a cellular level, she was rotten. And that was the moment that changed my whole perspective on the whole thing. I was like, we're, che- we're treating shame. We're not wow, treating. dude, that is, yeah, that is, I feel like that quote has been coming around a lot lately, whether you think you can or you think you can't. You're right. You're right. Yeah. And that's right. I guess whether you think yeah. you're an addict or you think you're not, you're right. That's right. And her shame was total. It was to her bones. And I knew it because I could feel it. Not because she told me she had it. Because I felt it. Because the energy coming off of her told me that. And we're energetic creatures. And I received it. And I said, I know that feeling. I feel like that too. An egomaniac with an inferiority complex. I know that too. You know, that you can sit in front of me and tell me that I'm a lovely guy and I'm, I'm great and I'm a good person and I shouldn't feel that way about myself. doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because I have a narrative that I am wed to. I, it's so funny that you said that because as you're talking and every time I've hung out with you, I feel this. What you say about your past or your experiences or your addiction or what you do Mm. and what I experience right in front of me as a guy that I've come to know a little bit is so vastly different. I'm always like, I always feel like you're telling me a story about another guy. (laughs) Because I'm like, that's not Tim. Tim, like you're extremely well aware you're very articulate about it. You're you're describing all of this beautifully. Yeah, and I kind of I, it's it's almost hard for me to even imagine. Yeah, that the guy that's sitting across from me, who's speaking this way, would feel that way about himself. And yet, I know because I feel like. I've felt that way about myself in situations when people would look at me and go like, really, you think that? And it's like, yeah, Yeah. I'm, uh, you know, uh, depending on when it is, when you catch me insecure, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, hard on myself, uh, feel incapable, um, all of it, just as everybody. And and that, that expression you're using, I'm not enough. First of all, I've talked about it on 10,000 No's. And in acting class, that's like the big thing. Mm. I always say that that's the, that's the root of bad acting mm. is this feeling I'm not enough. So then I'm going to overcompensate for it. I'm going to overact to mm. try to show you yes. that I'm this guy as opposed to 
right. going, I'm this guy. Right. This is this is it. And you come to me. Right. You know, I mean, obviously it takes work to get there, but that's, it, it all comes from a feeling of lack. Yes. And then we try to overcompensate. Yeah. And that narrative starts young. I mean, it starts very young and it, and the shame, you know, tells me, tells me, and it's, I mean, it's light years from where it used to be, but it tells me when it's acute, well, there's so much you don't know about me, Maddie. I mean, there's about a thousand things that I've done that I will never tell you. And if you knew those things, particularly these five or six, you would change your tune and you wouldn't be doing this podcast with me. You would think, you know, then this is how, this is how twisted shame gets. Then it tells me, well, I've, I've bamboozled another one. Yeah. You're going, I've faked Matt out. He thinks that I'm a good guy. He doesn't know that I'm a piece of shit. Right. And I've used my charisma, my charm, my intellect, my empathy, all, right, all to get you to think that. So what I start to hate myself for is what I'm good at. Yeah. That's how, that's the, and I think Brene Brown goes into this and, um, and Patrick Carnes a lot of you, so, you know, into this toxic shame where you can't win. Right. Because if you had a son, I was just going to say, yeah. it's like, that's like, a, that's like trying to, you, when someone says you're insane and you try to argue that you're not, then you look more insane. Right. That's like what's happening with you. Yes. And that is where lately with, that's where it gets really dark. Because if you had a son, and you do, and you say, well, my son's charismatic, he's smart, he's empathic, he's sensitive. You say, well, you must be so proud. And they said, well, 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 hang on now. He uses all of those things to get extra chips ahoy. You know, that's, that's how to- toxic shame begins, is when I'm using my assets for self-centered ends, or if I think that I'm using it to bamboozle you, which is probably not true. And I, you know, my, my good friend who we're mutual friends with, he knows this about me and he's really, he's, he's very good with this. He knows he can see it kind of a cloud come over my face sometimes. And he looks at me sometimes and says, we love you, dude. Like we don't, the things that you've done don't define you. We love you because of who you are. Yeah because of who you are. And I go, well, who is that? And he is says- Is it that guy that did those things or is it this? And guy? here's the trick. He doesn't say this, but I, he, this is what I think he means. He says, I know who you are. And I say, well, how do you know? And he goes, because I say so. And that is unconditional love, Right. I love you no matter what you've done. And then, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've tried to get people to reject me in recovery. I've sat down with them at the coffee shop and said, okay, I'm about to lay it on you, the slimiest thing I've ever done. And I tell them and they go, well, that's not as bad as this thing that I've done. And invariably I say, oh, it's way worse than the thing you've done. And why is that? Well, it's different, and I think this is what we're dying from, is it's different because it's me. Right. That's what I was going to say. It's ego. It's your yes, ego. It's right. like the woman who yeah. blew the smoke into the vent, and you're going, really? That's it? Yeah. And she's going, no, it was huge. I did this. Right. And 
she's right, it is, and you're right, it's not as huge as yeah. if she went out and killed someone. Yeah. And um, I just think, though, what's interesting in hearing this is that because you're exposed to so much of this and so many stories from so many people around these topics, yeah. I would think... At this point, you would go, well, yeah, I'm kind of doing that. I'm using my charm to do this or whatever. But everybody does that to some degree because they are human. And not everybody is always 100% doing the right thing. But, but I'm not human. But you're not human. No. In I'm your not. mind. Right. No, I mean, I'm, I'm being facetious, but it goes right. that far. It's yeah. I'm so different. Right. The rules are so different for me. Can you ever shake that? Yes. I mean, it's happening. It's occurring. Yeah. You know, and that word that your uh, your colleague there, your friend, uh, Paul, Paul Williams. Paul Williams. Yeah. I mean, gratitude is, you know, this is probably the bedrock of the recovery program. It's the key concept in there is you are not permitted to be ungrateful. And... <laughs> I mean, we're being totally brainwashed. I mean, I would, you know, you, I, I, the big joke I say is a sponsor sits down and the guy goes, well, I, I, I just got, you know, got cancer and lost my leg. And he goes, well, I guess you can hop to meetings then, you know, like, I mean, there's no, we're not allowed yeah. to be victims anymore. Yeah. And I mean, it doesn't invalidate our past and what we've been through, but it doesn't permit us to consistently use it as an excuse to destroy to our, to destroy ourselves. Yeah. And really, quite honestly, I think after years of working with addicts, I think that addiction is, is not truly about feeling, uh, it's not about getting high or really feeling better in the typical sense. It's about control. I mean, it's about control. It's about, um, you know, I, I reject you before you reject me. I, I destroy myself, but I did it. Yeah. You know, and there's a big hit in that. I mean, you talked a lot of acts. You're like, well, didn't you know that, you know, you were on probation and you shot meth and you, you know, uh, stole that car. Didn't you know you were going to the prison? They're like, oh, yeah, that's yeah. why I did it. Yeah, but I did it. Yeah. They say, that's why I did it. Yeah. What do you mean? Why you did it? I did it because I felt so out of control in the real world. I didn't know where to go, what job to get, if, what skills I have, what I'm good at. Yeah. I've done it's nothing. Like you. Yes. You know, Shawshank, he goes out in the world and he hangs himself. Hang, he, that's he, exactly he right. He can't handle it. He was safer right. in the prison. Right. In which addiction. Right. I mean, you talk to any addict, you say, when was the last, I talk to guys I work with, I say, when was the last time you got high? And they're like, oh man, they all shake their head. They're like a decade ago, years ago. It's the ones you have to worry about, the ones who are like, oh, dude, I'm still getting, I mean, I get high, I get high, it feels good. And you're like, well, that's where that billion dollar question comes in. If you're, if it's still working on some level, but the end for most addicts is when the drugs stop working. Yeah. You know, like literally you take the drink and you start sobbing. So what was rock bottom for you? Or do you not want to share it? That's fine. But was um, there a rock bottom where you were like... This is it. What was once you went and recovered? Did you relapse, or have you been? I did. I went to the Cushy Treatment Center, um, and then I came back home and I stayed clean for thirty 
30 days or something, went to a few meetings, didn't like them. They weren't nice enough to me. They weren't as interested in me as I thought they should be as they were in the treatment center. You know, they weren't getting up. And, you know, in the treatment center, they were focused on me. And I thought that everyone should be getting up. And so I thought, so I went out with my friends, took them. I was the designated driver. And I thought, oh, my God, these guys, man. I mean, some of these guys are going to have to go to treatment one day, too, just like me. You know, and I was so deluded. And I got loaded again, opiates and alcohol. And then I I almost died. And really, the... How did you almost die? In an accident or...? or? A respiratory failure. Oh. I mean, over OD. I mean, that's how uh, opiate addicts, that's what an OD is, is respiratory failure. It's actually a really peaceful way to die in a lot of ways because you just stop breathing. That was in D.C.? It was in D.C. And I, I had these kind of half-hearted attempts to go from D.C. to my dad's house, but I couldn't. I would go, I would start, you know, I would start to withdraw. And at that point, I mean, it's it's all bets are off when you enter and withdraw. You're so miserable and the beast is just screaming I mean, for more, and you will do anything to get more at that time. No, all your best intentions are out the window. Was there an intervention needed for you, or did you come to it on your own? Actually, I spoke to your our mutual friend who is, you know, like my brother, and he kind of calmly, it, it, was, it was how calm he was. <laughs> He's a fairly calm guy, but <laughs> he calmly said, he said, you're the worst part of my life. He said, you are the worst thing in my life. He said, I, I'm never glad to see you. I hate seeing you. You come in, come in the room and I'm sad you're there. I don't want to be around you. And he goes, and if it, if nothing changes, and it basically like it's a wrap on us. And this was like, he's my brother, you know. How old were you guys? I was 28. And that moment, I knew, I knew, because I felt it. And this is what an intervention is. You have to feel it. You have to know the tribe is going to cast you into the woods. It, it's not that they say it. The words are meaningless. You have to feel it. You have to be like, you either get on the plane and go to the treatment center or it's woods. And when you come down out of the woods to trade, there will be no one here. You have to, because it touches that deep biological instinct not to be alone, yeah. cast from the tribe. And it that seems to thwart the demands of it, it, it that fear exists in the same part of the brain. It battles the ego. It battles the ego and it and it and the fear, it can trump the fear of not getting loaded or giving up drugs. When your Aunt Charlotte says, Don't look at me. You ain't coming to my house. I'm changing the locks. I won't take your calls anymore. And you're like, But Aunt Charlotte, come on. Rice Krispie treats and Christmas. And she goes, no more. And you feel it. Yeah. That's when it's, you're like, okay, I'll go. Where does this, yeah, where's the plane, you know? Yeah. And he said that and I felt it. I knew he meant it. He wasn't just saying it. Yeah. And I got on a plane and, and went and then they pulled me out of bed. That was the first bottom. And then they pulled me out of bed at eight in the morning at about 20 days in. And they said, we're kicking you out because you can't follow the rules. And you are hijacking the groups you don't show up to group you, you threaten the counselors you know you don't listen and did they kick you out or no you just made it they did an intervention on me in treatment and it worked I, I this was my moment of clarity my bottom they pulled me into a room with 10 counselors and god bless them i mean i could start crying i have to go back there and thank them one day they saved my life they said you're going to get your stuff and you're going to leave and i started to divide the group 
one by one, because that's what a little boy does. He divides mom and dad. So I said, well, I, I would leave. You know, I'm, I'm a little concerned about some of your staff members because this guy over here, I heard, I thought, you know, I heard he makes racist jokes. And this guy, and I was starting to chop him up. And I didn't know consciously that's what I did, but I was a child emotionally. So, of course, I did it. Yeah. And they just, I saw them waver a bit. They kind of looked at the counselors in question, you know, but the main woman held the line. She goes, it ain't about them. It's about you. I'll deal with that later. Let's con let's continue on. And I started to speak and I the words wouldn't come out and I felt what's called ego deflation at depth. I felt sick and tired of being sick and tired. I felt so fucking exhausted. I didn't have any more words. And what was really interesting is I was so obsessed with whether or not you were an addict, I wouldn't talk to you unless you were an addict because you couldn't possibly know how I felt about things. But there was a counselor there who was empathic. And she looked at me the way she looked at me. I could tell she cared about my feelings. Yeah. And I said, can I talk to you for a second? I had to step into my office. I don't want anyone else. You know, I was so special. I, thought, I can't do this yeah. in front of anyone else. And stuff and she humored me. She didn't laugh at me. She said, okay, yeah, sure. You need some pride, okay. And I pulled her aside and I said, please don't kick me out. Please. Because it occurred to me that I was at a facility that was designed and built for people with behavioral problems and I was being kicked out. Yeah. So I was smart enough to understand that like- That you I, were pretty bad. That I, <laughs> and so she, God bless her. She said, she said, Tim, we'll keep you but I need you to do something for me. And I said, what? And she said, I need you to stop talking. And I said, what do you mean? She said, for the next week, I want you to, I don't want you to say a word. I want you to listen in groups. Totally quiet. Quiet as a mouse, little guy. Quiet, quiet. <laughs> and I sat in these groups and I didn't say a word. And that was the first time in my life I'd ever shut up. And I got to be honest, Matt, like, I swear to God, that was the first time in my life I ever heard a word anyone said, ever. And it was like, I would leave these groups. I'm like, did you hear that woman? She was so articulate. And and the people would be like, yeah, that's Jane. She's brilliant. <laughs> like, you, you might get something if you shut up. Like, you, you know, and I was like, can you believe? That must have just started come out of her. Like, where did that come from? And they're like, she talks like that all the time, Tim. Yeah, she's brilliant. That was the first time I ever listened. And that's what was really scary is that. And how we, old? You're 28 at 28. And that we can go through our whole lives on autopilot, entire life on autopilot and not hear a word anyone says, not mm -hmm. one, and never learn a thing about ourselves. And this is the hard part, I think, is that the hard part is to concede that you, Matt, the guy sitting in front of me, the person sitting across from you can teach you something about yourself you can see things in me that I can't see. You can see strengths in me that I can't see. You can see all sorts of things about me that I can't see. And that is really, really hard to concede. And that's what we need. We need people in front of us who say, look, dude, can I, can I give you some feedback? Can I tell you what I'm seeing here? I'm seeing this. Here are your strengths. Here's some of your weaknesses. Here's what I'm seeing. If you're lucky enough to have people like that in your life, you're, you're doing pretty well, but most of us have to go find it and build it 
And it's hard to know where to go do that. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's why friends are, I mean, if you have a trusted friend in your life, you're the luckiest person on the planet. If you have one person that cares about you and will tell you the truth, you, you know, so, you know, I always, I, it's funny as a counselor, I feel like I do a little private practice on the side. It's much harder to counsel people who aren't addicts, I find, because I can't send them to the miracle program right. or the community that's on every street corner from here to Russia and yeah. is free for in perpetuity. And I'm like, okay, so you need community. Yeah. Cause that's the treatment for everything. Well, that's what, if you ever heard that, uh, you know, the disease is the cure. That's what I keep thinking of with you and with the program is the disease is the cure. You know, the, the disease for you pointed out what you needed, what you needed was uh, yeah. community. Mm -hmm. And that's, and yeah. so the disease yeah, right. led you to the cure. Yes. And that's what everybody on this show, I mean, literally every guest, the worst thing that happened in their life is generally their purpose now. Uh, exactly. And that's kind of everything I listen to lately seems yes. the same way. Someone gets in an accident, they lose their leg, they, that's their purpose, you know, whatever it might be. Yes. That, that's, that's what it is. Um, and um, right. a little interruption over there. Um, so so let me give you one last thing, which I wouldn't think I would ask this uh, in, in some way. I guess it's, it's kind of what is your definition of success? Knowing everything that you... No, with everybody you work with, with yourself. What's your definition of success? God, the word gentle keeps popping into my mind, but I'm not sure why. Gentle? Gentle. I don't know why. I mean, I feel like the easiest thing in this world is anger. You know, the e it's, it's so easy. It's there for me whenever I, I mean, it's just always there, always being indignant about something or it's those, them over there, the Democrats, it's the Republicans, it's someone else. It's always someone else. But, you know, it's this, you know, the, the, the AA big book says love and tolerance is our code. And all of these spiritual principles and all this stuff now, it's so lovely to talk about in theory. I mean, I love talking about it, but doing it, oh, man. And I, I'm happy to forgive someone that I already love. But how about the guy that I have deep rage and resentment towards, right? Do I have room for him? And what I think, I'm starting to really explore more is this, you know, I'd, I'd hear this word acceptance in recovery, you know, and I always thought it meant I accept you and all you, I, I put up with you, but really I have to accept the parts of myself that I loathe. I mean, I have to accept them and love them and hold them tight and invite them to dinner and bring them in like, like the children I cast off years ago. You know, like the 
the sons that I have that we don't speak about. You know, we don't speak about those. We talk about the good kids. I have to bring those guys in tight and, and, and love them and love them and love them 10 times, 20 times, 100 times harder. The stuff that I've done that I am deeply ashamed of, the ways I've let hurt the people I love, let them down. And I think that the success is in realizing that I am projecting onto the rest of the world the parts of myself that I disavow, that I disown. And the guy that I don't like, it ain't him. It's never him, right? It's me. And I'll find a way to make it sound like it's him, right? And I'll do a real good job at the dinner party telling everybody that it's his, oh, it's him, and I'll get them all behind me. But the fact is, is that the person who has the awareness that humans are projecting machines, that we are constantly projecting onto the world, you know, onto others, onto that person, and that what we like or dislike in others is usually what we like or dislike in ourselves. That awareness, when I hear somebody talk like that, you know, somebody say, that self-deprecation or that person who says, I know that that wasn't him. I wasn't mad at him. I lo and then I looked at myself. That person is my hero. That woman is my hero. That man is my hero. Um, people that think it's the other guy or the other woman. Now, I'm not saying that at times it, it, it is like, you know, if you're in if someone's you know, in extreme cases, I'm not saying that, but... I'm saying generally speaking, people that have the awareness to know that, you know, the old saying is you spot it, you got it, right? Those people are my heroes. You know, and it's, it, it's such a, a mix of, it's, it's so complicated. I mean, it's, it's more gratitude. It's less victim. It's more love out. It's more accepting the parts of myself that I loathe. After being in recovery for a long time, I'm realizing more and more that it's not about getting rid of defects. It's about accepting them and inviting them in and then saying, okay, we need to have a talk. <laughs> You can no longer have the credit card and, <laughs> you know, but I'm not kicking you out because every moment in my life where I've been saved or loved when I couldn't love myself, it was people saying, I won't abandon you. And it's those things in myself that I have to not abandon too. And I think so often we're trying to abandon those things. You know, Jung talks about the shadow, you know, as everything that's not culturally acceptable or right to quote unquote goes into this box, the shadow. Yeah. And he said that we remain disintegrated our entire lives if we don't open that box and invite the shadow in and say that you are just as much a part of me and a necessary part of me as whatever light I have to give. So I think it's it, success for me is at a basic level, people that know that they're doing that 
and can laugh about it. Yeah. Knowing you're human and accepting that. Yeah. That's it. That's the deal. Yeah. Tell me where people could, I don't think it's <laughs> this way with you where people could find you. I don't think you're necessarily like social media, but just tell us again, Hazelden, if anybody's out there um, who is in need, mm. where they would, I don't know if people can seek you out directly or. Yeah, I'm, my name's Tim Craley, <laughs> uh, C-R-A-L-E-Y. I'm in Portland, Oregon. I will private practice on the side that nobody comes to. <laughs> I can't, I can't, I can't keep, uh, I've had some clients that have been lovely sessions. I thought they were great. I, I did. I, I really benefited from the sessions. <laughs> they don't, I yeah. So um, you can, uh, look, I'm on the Portland, uh, therapy center website, P PTC. Cool. Well, I'm going to yeah. say this. I'm going to throw down the gauntlet before we leave yeah. and say, you should write a book. Oh, really? Yeah, man. All right. started blog or a podcast or something because you got a lot of wisdom to share. Thanks, man. So, yeah. I Thank you for, for being here. This was awesome. Thanks, man. Thanks. All right. All right. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. There are always takeaways to these episodes. And for me, I mentioned it in the beginning. I'll mention it again, just as, as you're parting uh, to put it in your head, the importance of community and also the importance of honesty with friends, you know, not telling your friends what you just getting away with the easy thing, but actually say, hey, buddy, I think you got a problem. I think we need to address this, or maybe it's your child, or maybe it's your spouse. Having the courage to be honest with someone that you really care about, as you heard Tim say about our mutual friend, that honesty is what saved him. You can literally save a life. So top two takeaways, find a community and be honest with your friends. And I guess the, the flip of that is seek out friends who are honest with you and not just blowing smoke up your ass. Uh, it could save your life. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for listening. If you are digging these episodes, I hope if you haven't already subscribed, please do so on iTunes or Spotify. You can also listen and look around on 10,000nos.com. That's 10000nos.com. Um, if you have comments or suggestions or questions, you can always email us. You can contact us there. There's a little button on the website. And um, these episodes come out every Friday. So I hope you will be back next week and I hope you spread the word if you're liking it. Uh, we really appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah.